Let me ask you a question. How many people like to overpay for things? All right, good. So I had one person raise their hand last service, and then last night one person raised their hand. Like, oh, you're throwing me off. Okay. Uh, Nobody likes to overpay for things, right? I mean, we like the fair exchange of value. Makes us feel settled with the exchange. I know that I can go to the store right now, and I can grab a dozen eggs for roughly a dollar and a half, and I'm perfectly okay with that. I'm good. That's a fair exchange of value. Now, I I need about seven or eight dozen a week in my household, but you know, that's okay. I can go to Bean Tree most mornings, and I can get a really good breakfast with fresh ingredients, roughly $10 plus tip for a breakfast, give or take, and I'm good with that. That's a fair exchange of value to me. I'm happy to, to do that. I can go down to the fast stop. Pay $3.19 a gallon, and I, well, no, I'm not okay with that, actually. (laughs) But we, we like the idea of this fair exchange, settling evenly on things. But occasionally, there is an exchange that is made that is so disproportionate. The scales are tipped so drastically that one side experiences incredible benefit and value, and another side pays a very dear cost. Not even, if you will. I know when I was younger, I used to like collecting baseball cards. Anybody else here? Baseball, football, hockey cards. I got all kinds of them in my, in my house, and one day I'll go through them with my son. But I remember one time that there was this card that I really wanted that one of my buddies had. It was a rookie card, actually a minor league card of an up-and-coming hockey star who was one of my favorite players, and I had to have this card. And uh, he went on to be a better-than-average player. The card's probably worth a couple hundred dollars now. But in order to get that card, I had to give something up that was very pricey. I had no idea at the time, and I certainly wish I wouldn't have done it now, but I gave up a Jerry Rice rookie card. I know. Eli, he's a football player. He's like, that's it. You can't be my pastor anymore. I can't believe it. He crushed me. And I just happened to read an article, painfully, I think a mint condition Jerry Rice rookie card last year sold for $31,000. Oh, my gosh, I know. Okay. <laughs> Woo, yep. Pastor Guy's like, that could help us with some space around here, you know? But every now and then, the scales get tipped drastically disproportionately. And the title of our message today, as we gaze upon the cross, is The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange. And I want you to ask yourself a question that we will hopefully answer as we go through our sermon this morning. What actually was exchanged? Because there was an exchange that took place on Calvary and on the cross. What exactly was that? 
In order to really grasp the significance of this, we have to peer into our story, our Easter story. We're going to begin at the trial of Jesus when he's appearing for the final time before Pontius Pilate. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew chapter 27. If not, we will read from the verses and they'll be on the screen and you can follow with us, beginning in verse 15. It says, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said to him, let him be crucified. The governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate had saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude and said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. When he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, we just ask you today in Jesus' name, help us to peer into the cross with fresh eyes. Help us to hear what you're saying today with fresh ears. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me to preach your word. God, I'm under no illusion. There is nothing in me capable of bringing any transformational value to people apart from your anointing and the empowering of your spirit, God. I'm completely dependent upon you, and I ask you, please, speak through me, that people would see you and hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is quite a trial, not just any trial. We actually have two people in play here. Obviously, we have Jesus and we have Barabbas. Not just Jesus on trial, but there's this part of the story where Barabbas is involved. In fact, Barabbas' release is contingent upon Jesus' condemnation. And so, when we look at this, we, we know from our story that this one man, Barabbas, is entirely guilty. Other accounts of the gospel say he's guilty of murder and sedition, inciting riots against the Roman authorities, likely killed someone or more than one person in the riots. He is guilty as charged. He's in chains and he is in bondage. In fact, he is awaiting a death 
sentence. The irony in this is that murderers were never released. It was a custom of the Romans to release a prisoner during the Passover to the Jews just to try to keep the peace, just to make themselves look merciful, kind of keep order in the society. But they would not release murderers. Yet Barabbas, who is guilty of murder and sedition, he has an unpayable debt. He can never reconcile this thing on his own. No amount of money, no amount of servitude that he would do would ever release him from this crime. He is, so to speak, folks, a dead man walking. Yet here comes Jesus, a man who is entirely innocent. They accused him of many things, but he was the Son of God, so he was not guilty of blasphemy. And interestingly enough, they twisted the story around because blasphemy was not an offense that would be punishable by death through the Romans, so they accused Jesus of sedition and of rebellion. I find it remarkable that a man who is innocent of this crime is being accused and sentenced to death for the very thing that Barabbas himself is guilty of. Wow. And then we see this story and we read this, and I don't know if you're like me, but I see it and I read it and I can't help but thinking initially at first glance, oh, it is the greatest of injustices. This is entirely unfair. I just want to get in the story and yell and say something. You don't understand. He's innocent. He really is the son of God. He's guilty. Why would you release a murderer? And we cry out, this needs to be fair, this needs to be equal. Yet all of a sudden, one day, you read the story, you look upon the situation that's happening here, and it dawns on you, your eyes begin to get open, the Spirit of God gives you insight into this particular scene, and you realize that I, you, we are Barabbas. The exchange. A guilty man with an unpayable debt in chains, in bondage, incapable of buying his own release, yet is set free by an innocent man who is not guilty and the only one who could be substituted for him in this situation to lead to his freedom. That's the story of the gospel. You see, this, this trial is a prelude, if you will, to the greatest exchange that would ever take place in the history of the world. What is that exchange? Point number one, if you're taking notes today, that we have to understand is that we were guilty. We were guilty. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Okay, you have to grasp this. We, the Bible walks us through the importance of understanding that all of us are born into this world in sin, in the condition of sin. In fact, we can read here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and Paul says, and you being dead in your trespasses or your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, Jesus, has made alive together with him, 
having forgiven you all of your trespasses or sins. So what he's saying is that every person who's born into the world by way of the womb is born into the world in the condition of sin. Yes, we live, mortally speaking, we're alive in the flesh, but spiritually, on the inside, we are dead. That's what he means when he says you're dead in your sin. But then Jesus comes along, and through his redemptive act, he actually makes you alive spiritually on the inside. And now you have life not only mortally, but you have life eternally. Does that make sense? I know we've all probably had moments in our lives where we've lost loved ones. And it is, a, it is a thing to grieve when people have passed on from this earth. But listen to me, I want to say this by way of encouragement. It is a greater grief for those who live mortally now but are dead spiritually than those who have died mortally but are living forever in eternity. That's a greater celebration. So we're born into the world in sin. Paul says it another way. In Romans, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us enter into the world in this way. There is none righteous, no, not one, and the wages of sin is death. So that sin carries with it a punishable offense. Something has to happen to either atone for that, or there's a punishment that will come for that. You say, well, how's that possible? It doesn't even sound fair. Well, the Bible answers that question for us. We could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, and listen to this. It says, for since by man came death, he's referring to Adam, the context of these verses, he's talking about the two Adams. Adam in the garden is the first Adam, and he says Jesus is the last or second Adam. For since by man came death, by man, don't you like that capital M, Jesus is the man, right? By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You say, well, it's not fair. I'm born into the world in sin because of one man's sin. Well, maybe it's not fair in your eyes. But if you hold that, that view and that approach, you'd have to apply it to this other side, which says through one man, life can actually enter to all who would believe. I'm thankful for that, because only Jesus could actually make a way for us to be brought back into relationship with God. And we have to understand that this sin we're born into the world with, it's not a small matter. You know, it's not like a grandpa who looks on their grandchild in their they're, you know, things that they do wrong are kind of cute and funny, and they laugh, and they turn their head. They don't want to let them see them laughing. And I get that, and we got that dynamic in our family, too, but we got to understand that God's not like a grandpa looking at our sin that we're born into this world with, like it's this cute little thing that he's laughing at. He's looking at it saying, this is the thing that's separating from me from you, and we got to do something about this. we got to get this out of the way. And the only way to get it out of the way is to atone for it with a perfect sacrifice. You see, we have to come to the grips of the reality that without repentance of that sin, there can be no forgiveness. 
right? You can't be forgiven if you're not sorry for something, genuinely. So we repent of our sin, and then we're forgiven, and forgiveness is what leads to salvation. I get concerned that in our American church culture today, you know, we hear that you're, you know, God's going to take care of you, he's going to do things for you, he's going to bless you, and there's blessings and promises, and it's all true, it's part of the gospel, it's, it's all true, but it's part of the gospel. <laughs> and if we don't understand, if we haven't repented and turned from our sin and been forgiven, then I'm just telling you, according to scripture, those promises and blessings are not applicable. Are you hearing me? It's, they are for children of God, and we're made children through forgiveness, and we're forgiven when we repent. <laughs> we have to understand how lost, depraved, how dead and hopeless we are without Christ. All are guilty. None are righteous. No, not one. When we understand that, it convicts our heart and leads us to the place where we ask Jesus for forgiveness. Can I get an amen on that from anybody? Point number two is that Jesus takes our punishment. Jesus takes our punishment. So just like he took the punishment that was intended for Barabbas, Jesus takes the punishment, took the punishment, that's really intended for us. You see, the condition of sin that we're born into the world with, if it's not atoned for, if it's not dealt with, the Bible makes it clear that the punishment for that is the wrath of God and the judgment that's to come. Listen to this in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. It says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So sin has to be atoned for or there's a punishment for it. And so when we're forgiven, the wrath of God that's punishable to the sin is no more upon us. But if we haven't repented and been forgiven, listen to what it says in John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But listen to this, the wrath of God still abides on him or still remains on him. And so when Jesus was on the cross, he took our punishment for us so we don't have to take it. That's incredible. And not only did he take the punishment, folks, this is the part that absolutely blows me away. Frankly, it's unfathomable to me. But it says that he himself actually became our sin. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. It is a critical component of the gospel and of the cross that Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, actually becomes our sin. The Father, it says he put the whole world's sin upon him. He laid the iniquity of us all upon him. John says he took on the sin of the whole world. Wow. When I hear that, I, I begin to understand a little bit the struggle that Jesus had in the garden. Oh, Father, would you take this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. 
My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death, even while hanging on the cross. Father, why have you forsaken me? You see, I know that there was a lot of this anguish that was happening because of the pain and the torture that he experienced and the scourging, the beating, and the crucifixion, but I am convinced that the vast majority of the agony and the anguish that Jesus was feeling was knowing that he would become the sin of the world on that cross. He's a holy, perfect God. He's pure. He knows no sin, yet he's about ready to become the dark, repulsive, corrupt, evil thing that he despises. And he agonizes over that. Oh, our Savior, our Deliverer, He takes our place. Unbelievable. A great theologian in the 1700s by the name of Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, Jesus hanging on that tree and becoming the curse for us, taking the curse into His own body, Peter says. He says, Jesus doing that, and saving us from God's wrath that would come if we hadn't been delivered. He said, it's like this. It's like you standing in front of a dam that's holding back an immeasurable gulf of water, and it's cracking and breaking, and just as it's about ready to explode open, and you're going to get crushed and drowned by the force of this, Jesus steps right in front of you and swallows the entire gulf in one gulf. You see, he became our sin. And I think the horror and the glory of the thought all at the same time. Yeah, it's a beautiful and glorious cross, but it's also a bloody and violent cross as well. And that's the whole story. Jesus is hanging up there, taking on the sin of the world, and he stays up there. The soldiers are taunting him, even the prisoner alongside of him. They say, if you're really the son of God, just take yourself down. Just come off the cross for crying out loud and end this thing. Save yourself. We'll know you're the son of God if you do that. Yet they can't even understand how short-sighted their vantage point is. And Jesus is gazing beyond temporal Time and he's looking into eternity. He's looking to you and to me and the salvation that he would bring. I'm so grateful that he stayed on that cross and did not succumb to the taunts and the temptations of mortal man who knows not what he needs apart from God. He stayed up there because Jesus wasn't doing some dog and pony trick then. I'll come down, I'll prove it to you. You want me to prove it to you? You want me to do something to make you believe? He wasn't doing it then, and he's not doing it now. I'm concerned sometimes today people will do this for me, or fix this, or fix that, and then we'll talk, Jesus. Maybe we'll see about things. Haunting God almost in a way where they were even at that point. Prove it to me first, and then I'll believe. And Jesus says, come to me. See the desolation of your sin, and I will forgive you and lead you into life everlasting. But we have to recognize and see our lostness to appreciate the price that's been paid for us. Amen?
Hallelujah. And not only did he take the sin on himself, the Bible says in Colossians that he actually nailed our sin to the cross. Do you know that? It's still there. <laughs> Unbelievable. The curse of sin that we're born into the world with, when we're forgiven, it's still there, nailed to the cross. All the shame that comes with sin has been removed, and we can live as the authentic you. Not worried about winning appraisals or praises of men, but living to serve and please one alone. In a life of complete security in our identity of who we are and whose we are. Amen. And the last point that Jesus does for us is He sets us free. He sets us free. He delivers us from the bondage and the chains that sin bears with it. It says in Ephesians that we were once far off. In fact, other places, even enemies of God, because where there's sin, there's enmity with God. But he says, you who were once far off, you've been brought near by the blood, and we've been made at peace with God. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. The prize for Jesus, take this in, take this in. The prize for Jesus was you. Me. Us. I can't even comprehend that. That he went through all of that for what? To win us back to himself. He wants you that much. In fact, he wants the whole world that much. And he's still calling out today, saying, who will come to me, and I can give you rest for your soul. You will never find that in this world. And have the assurance of knowing that you will live in eternity forever. He came to set us free. I asked you at the beginning a question. I said, what was the exchange? Really, it's simple. His life for ours. You see, our sin was the unpayable debt. You can't pay your way out of that, and you can't do enough good deeds to work your way out of that. Just like Barabbas, dead man, dead women walking. No ability to save ourselves. Our sin's the unpayable debt. The redemptive price that was paid, the life of Jesus, the only thing that could atone for it. His blood covers it. The prize, he wins us to himself. I can't even grasp that really. But I don't know about you. We come to a day like today, and I want to shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dead but now I'm alive. I was an old man lost in my sin, and now I am a new man and new creation. This is not a metaphor. We are new creations in Christ, born again with the Spirit of God, holy DNA. Now, Peter says, we are partakers of the divine nature. We are children in the family of God. And I want to encourage you today, folks, brothers and sisters, 
Jesus does not mean for you to live every day of your life in ambiguity or uncertainty. Am I saved? Am I not? Am I lost? Am I saved? Am I in? Am I out? He doesn't intend for his children to live like that. He says, I'll give you the blessed hope and the blessed assurance of knowing that the day of your redemption is at hand. He says, I'll give you my Holy Spirit as a guarantee, which means a deposit or a down payment for more that is still to come. That's the promise that awaits us in heaven. It just keeps getting better. So when we say death has been defeated, the grave has been defeated, it's lost its sting, let me ask you, when you know death cannot hold you, you're going to live forever, tell me please, what is there left to fear? What is there left to fear? And when I read this story, I see, boy, that was a great exchange. Incredibly disproportioned, would you agree with me? Scales are tipped infinitely. No greater disproportioned exchange and no better exchange that's ever happened in the history of the world. But I look upon it and I am thankful today. Thankful that Jesus went all the way for me. And he went all the way for you. And he's saying today, my will is that none would perish. All should come to everlasting See, he's still tarrying on his return. That's how long-suffering and how patient he is with us. Hallelujah. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for that today. Would you stand to your feet with me? And before we go, and you're watching online, I'm speaking to you too. Before we go, I want to ask you a question. Where are you at with Jesus? You see, this is the single most important question that every human heart will need to settle this side of eternity. What will you do with Jesus? Single most important question. Have you turned from your sin condition that you're born into the world in? Have you turned entirely to Jesus? Have you given your life to him? Serve him. Say, Pastor, man, you don't know what I've done. You do not know how lost I am and how bad things are. And I acknowledge that. I, I don't. But I know what Jesus would say to that. He would say that the arm of the Lord is never too short to save. There's no lostness that you're in that's too far from God to reach in and save you right now if you're willing to turn to him. If you don't believe me, just ask the thief on the cross. Because he's in paradise right now, and we'll meet him when we get there one day. Your last breath, Jesus is petitioning you. Will you come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden? I'll give you rest for your soul. Say, Pastor, I, I want that prayer. I want to give my life to Christ. Turn from this world and everything in it and turn entirely to Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you've walked with Christ before in your life, but you've drifted away. You're, you're not walking with him now. Yes, you've been saved, but you're walking in a path that is not God's path for you. And you want to get back to walking with him. Just as you can't earn salvation, I'm here to tell you, you can't earn your way back to God. You just need to be ready to ask for forgiveness and he'll receive you with the loving arms of a father. 
Say, Pastor, I want that prayer today. Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes, everybody here for a moment. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand. I'm going to count to three. Just raise your hand. You say, I want this prayer. I need this prayer today. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to turn from my sin, ask for forgiveness, or get back to walking with him. I just want to lead you in this prayer. You mean business with God in your heart. You mean business with you. You don't have to leave here today the way in the condition that you were when you came in. I'm telling you that. This is your moment. Jesus did what he did for you. It was personal. Hey, Pastor, I, I want that prayer. I'm ready. Today's my day. I'm ready to take a stand for Christ. On the count of three, would you raise your hand? One, two, three. Hi, so I can see. Yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. God bless you. Yes, sir. God, yes, ma'am. Just kind of keep them up so I can see for a moment. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Okay? I see all those hands. You can put them down. Is there anybody else? Like the Spirit of God is tugging on you. I just, I kind of feel like there's somebody else here where you're like, you're, you're, you want to raise it. You're just kind of in between. You're in the this valley of decision. <laughs> and the Lord's tugging on you. He's really pulling on you. And you know, yes, ma'am, I see your hand. God bless you. That's how the Lord works right there. I just want to lead you in this prayer. If we could all just join together. You can lift up your head and look. Open your eyes. Let's, let's pray together. For those who raise your hand, boy, we want to we want to connect with you. We want to walk with you. We want to help you in this journey. It's important you get plugged into a good Bible-believing church. So we'd love to connect with you after this. But right now, this moment, it's all about you and God. Let's pray together. You say, Dear Father God, I turn from my sin. I ask you to forgive me. Wash me with your blood and make me new. Fill me with your spirit that I may live in eternity with you and help me to become the person you've created me to be. I want to serve you, God, with my whole life. Jesus, you are my Lord and you are my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we give all those folks a round of applause? The Bible tells us that when one person repents, that all of the angels in heaven are shouting and praising. There is a chorus happening right now in the heavenly realm for you. Praise God. I feel like we need to go out of here on a high note, Pastor Guy. A victory, a triumph, celebration. What do you say? Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. There's nothing. Nothing is better than you. Come on, you know that's true. I'm not afraid to show you my weakness. Because my failures and flaws, Lord, you see them all and you still. Call me free, cause the God of the mountain, yeah.
weekend. May you have a great time with your family and friends. And as you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May his countenance radiate all over you and may he give you peace. Go in the peace and favor of God. God bless you. We love you. Have a beautiful day.